Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Who do people say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is this morning? In general, people have lots of ideas, different ideas about who Jesus is. I looked this up on the internet, which is a dangerous thing to do. And one Reddit user said this, I keep hearing different stories. Some people say there was never any Jesus. Some say Jesus was a real person, but a normal person who applied magic powers metaphorically in the stories. I also heard that the stories of Jesus are stories of multiple people compiled into one character. That's what the world says of Jesus. In the text, there's different ideas about who Jesus is. Some say John the Baptist, who was, of course, dead by that point. So assuming that Jesus is some new form of John the Baptist, reincarnated or something. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Who is Jesus? Who do people say that I am? You might be familiar with different ideas about him in the world. This uh, particular person online, I think, summarises many of the common views about who Jesus is today. But Jesus turns and looks at Peter and the whole group of disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? And so let me ask you the question. Who do you say Jesus is this morning? It's a very, very important question. It's important for one reason. You will be asked that question again, not just today, before the judgment seat of Jesus on that final day. You'll be asked, who did you say that I am? And on the basis of the truth of that confession will depend upon what happens next. So it is important to say the least, that this confession, this declaration of who Jesus is, is truthful. Of course, we see Peter responding on behalf of the disciples in the text. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter says something that we need to hear. And there's a few different aspects to what Peter said and aspects to what happened to Peter, which I think will be helpful for us to learn from this morning. And so I'm going to go through these in order. Uh, That firstly, Peter recognized the presence of God. Secondly, he became a rock that Jesus will build with. Thirdly, he received the keys to the kingdom. Fourthly, he came under satanic attack. And fifthly, he was called to deny and die to self to follow Jesus. So let me start at the top, that Peter recognised the presence of God. I want to point out something to you very interesting in the location of where Jesus and his disciples were. Of course, we're continuing through the book of Matthew, and if you follow geographically, they often are crossing over the Sea of Galilee in ancient Israel, and this time they cross to a region called Caesarea Philippi. Now, these people in this region on the northeastern sort of uh, front of the Sea of Galilee were not believers in Yahweh, the God of Israel. They're what we call pagans, that is, they worshipped other gods. And so notice that Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says it in the presence of people who did not believe 
and in the region of people who did not believe that this is the living God. Peter's emphasis is also that he is alive, he is not dead like their gods. There is one God and there is a true God. Just as we sung this morning, there is no God like Jehovah. The question is, do you believe it? The text would say, and many people here would testify, that this in fact is true, that there is no one like him. He is unique. There is no one like him in all existence, in all the universe. He alone is the living God. And so Peter recognized the presence of God. There was a preacher in the middle of last century named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he had a woman who was a medium come in to service once. And this woman would uh, have a a society of mediums and um, sort of spiritual people who would meet together, psychics and the like. And she would sense that there was a power in those meetings that she had with people who were seeking this otherworldly strength to tell people their future and their fortune. And yet when this woman came into a church building, she noticed a similar sort of power in the room. But it was a clean power, she said, unlike hers. This woman subsequently put her faith in Jesus because she recognised that this clean power was, of course, the true power which she needed and was looking for. She knew who Jesus was. She recognised his presence. The Bible tells us that Jesus this morning, so today, is present amongst his people gathered in this room, in this building. As we meet, we testify that Jesus himself is with us. And so as Peter recognised the presence of God, we need to realise also that, he, that Jesus calls us this morning to recognise who he is truly. Even if we've never believed in it before, even if perhaps we've moved away from having a fully-fledged trust in Jesus in our life. This same preacher I referred to earlier uh, had someone uh, come into his church who had been through a terrible life. They'd been a Christian for much of their life, but they'd cheated on their wife, gone off with another woman. That relationship had broken down, they'd lost all his money, and he was on his way. This church was in the middle of London, and he was on his way to jump off a bridge next to Big Ben. But as he was on his way to jump off the bridge, he saw people all rushing towards this church building because, of course, there was a meeting that evening. And so he decided that he would walk in to this room just one last time, that perhaps maybe he'd hear something helpful. And the words, the first words that he heard when he walked into that building was, may God have mercy on the backslider. A backslider being someone who's turned away from Jesus, though having first believed in him. And this man too put his trust in Jesus that day. He recognised the presence of God, not just as a thing to say, but calling him. Just as Jesus called Peter, who do you say that I am? So Jesus calls you today, who do you say that I am? Do you recognise his presence amongst his people? Do you recognise him this morning? Jesus also calls us to courage by 
his presence. Of course, we leave this building this morning and we go to various places in a city and in a country where many people, in fact, most people do not believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. And yet we see Peter had courage to declare what he believed in that place. And so this is a call to Christians today for courage. That is in your workplace, in your family, in your social circle, with your friends, that at your school, at your university, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are called to courage to declare it. And we can only do that when we recognize personally the presence of God. My second point is that Peter became a rock that Jesus builds with. We see this in verses 17 and 18. As uh, Peter has responded to Jesus' call, Jesus responds to him. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter confesses something that is rock solid. Peter confesses something that is so true that Jesus will continue to build his church based on this truth and is still doing so today. These verses, as it turns out, are some of the most contested verses in the Bible. And the reason is is that there's a bit of play on words here, and you'll see this in verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Of course, the word Peter and rock in the original Greek sound the same. And so the assumption from uh, the Catholic Church is that uh, Peter would become the first pope, and that the authoritative word of God will be passed on from that day onwards down through the generations. But unfortunately, uh, the text doesn't tell us that Peter is the pope of the church. In fact, I think there's a misunderstanding there which is important to clear up. And and it comes out from the play on words. You see, Jesus is saying that, and in fact renaming him. We noticed that his name was Simon before, and now his name is Peter. Simon means a listener, and Peter means a rock. Jesus is saying that, Peter, these words that you have proclaimed are the solid foundation of what I will build my church on. And you, Peter, will be a leader in this church. And based on this confession of faith, I will continue to build my church. A good way to see it is like this. Peter will be the small stone, because Peter's name in the Greek translates to small stone. And the rock, the way Jesus uses rock, translates to a big rock. Peter, you will be a small stone in this rock foundation that I'm building this church upon, this group of God's people. And so Peter becomes a rock based on his confession. We see that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hell has a gate. The idea of hell in, this, in the text here is the idea of death. And that the gates of hell, as in the doorway to death, will not prevail against this confession of faith. That is, that this confession of faith provides an alternative to death. That this confession of faith provides a new way that people might step out of death and into life. 
And Jesus himself would be that way. Jesus is saying that the gates of hell will not prevail against this confession of faith, this true word, because Jesus himself will defeat the power of death on his cross and by his resurrection. That at the end of this book, Jesus would rise victorious from death, proving that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I guess the question for us, and, and it's quite here, it's here in the text as well, verse 17, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. There's a blessing tied to becoming a rock like Peter. And the question is, will we receive the same blessing of being a rock like Peter? And what is this blessing? Well, it's the realisation that you have not earned it, nor bought it, but by the grace of the Father, Jesus has revealed, has Jesus has been revealed to you. We notice in the text that it says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That is, you cannot believe in Jesus just by working it up mentally. You cannot believe in Jesus and find true faith in him by just being baptised, or by doing a few religious things, or having your first communion. God the Father must reveal it to you by the Holy Spirit. And when you're blessed by this confession, when you truly say it, you know that it's because of His work in you, not because of your work, that you are part of His people. Secondly, no fear of death will hold you captive. That is, if you truly hold this confession of faith to be true, if you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God, then you have no fear of death anymore. And finally, you have great confidence that Jesus will continue to be revealed to others by the Holy Spirit. That is, as you continue to confess the truth of this in your workplace, in your family, in your home, in your social circles, you can be confident that the Father will reveal the truth of Jesus to them too. Peter was transformed. Jesus recognised that Peter had become a new person. He'd moved from being a listener to being a rock. And the question for you is, will you also be transformed by this confession? Will you become useful for him by declaring the same words that Peter declared, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Who do you say that he is? Thirdly, Peter received the keys to the kingdom. And we see this in verses 19 and 20. He says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciple to tell no one that he was the Christ. The keys to the kingdom. That's a, that's a strong metaphor, isn't it? What does this mean, this idea of the keys to the kingdom? When we get a real, really good clue in the text here, it says, I will give. Not I have given, but future tense, I will give you an un- a way to unlock this truth in the broader world. A way to unlock the truth about who Jesus is to the rest of the world. How will this be done? Well, we see actually Peter doesn't start to do anything like this until Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes. And it's when the Holy Spirit comes that the key is put into Peter's hand. And he begins to preach and people get converted. And Peter continues to preach 
in concentric circles outside of Jerusalem. It goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to the other regions of the world proclaiming this same truth. And he's the first one to do it, utilizing this key that God has given him by the Holy Spirit. This key is this gospel message, this same confession that he's made, and the power of the Holy Spirit together so that he can open and reveal the truth about Jesus to them. Secondly, we see that the binding and the loosing from this text is the apostolic authority. So it's interesting that, uh, and again, this is one of the most contested texts in the New Testament, we see the second part of verse 19, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the idea that there is authority that comes with this key. There is authority that comes with what Peter is doing. People will be either bound up by hearing this gospel message and not believing it. They'll be consumed and controlled by their sin or they'll be loosed and freed from it with their response to the gospel message. And Peter and after him, the church will have the responsibility of declaring it to the world. I wonder how many people this morning are bound by their sins. I mean, the question that we want to ask from the text here is, are we bound by sin in our lives? Has sin begun to grip us in such a way that we realize it's consuming us? There's things that we just can't escape from in our lives, and yet Jesus has the power to free us, to loose them from us. Some of you here this morning have been gripped by sin for years. Some of you here this morning have never known a life apart from sin. And it might have been coming to mind now as I speak. And as we turn to this text, we realize that Jesus has given the power to free you, to loose you from your sin through the proclamation of this word, that he himself will do it. Will you believe it? Will you confess it with him? We see, this in, uh, we see also in verse 20, and this is fascinating, that Jesus told them to not tell anyone else about this. He charged them strictly not to tell others that he is the Christ. Why would Jesus do this? Is this a secret message? Are we in a secret meeting this morning? It doesn't look like it. Then why would Jesus say this then? And the answer is that they hadn't yet been given the keys to the kingdom. They hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. And so the answer to many Christians here who struggle with this, because you know the message. You've heard it many times. You've spoken this message to others many times. And yet, you fail to see God doing something in power with this message. The answer is that you need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you, just like they did in Acts chapter 2 and continued to have throughout 
the book of Acts? The answer is that we don't just need this power once, but we need to be refreshed in it continually. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We need to continue seeking after God's power. If the Father can only reveal the true identity of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, then we need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us and to work through us. Point four, Peter came under satanic attack. We'll see this in verses 21 to 23. It's interesting that this comes directly after his confession. So Peter has this high point. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he has this low point. And Peter tries to rebuke Jesus for saying that he's going to go to the cross and rise from the dead. And so I think this is straight up a warning for us that after a spiritual high can come a spiritual low. That is, if you're a believing person here this morning and you've been excited by something about Jesus, you've made a declaration of him to be true, be wary of the attack that might come afterwards. I remember when I was a teenager, I went to one of those youth conferences. And I'd been living a bit of a double life, I, say, I would say, at, as a teenager. That is, I went to church on a Sunday, but then during the week at school, you wouldn't know it. I didn't tell anyone that I was a Christian, and I pretty much acted the same as if everyone else did. So no one knew. There was this hidden identity that I had. But I went along in my holidays to a conference. And there was a lot of singing, a lot of preaching. And I was, got really excited by this. And I, I got so excited, but there was a problem. I couldn't sleep. It seemed I was so excited and so filled with energy from this sense of God's closeness and his presence in my life that I couldn't sleep. So I told my dad about this and he put the finger on it and he said he he believed that this was an attack of the enemy, of Satan, against me. And so he prayed that God would remove the work of Satan upon me. He put his finger on the issue. The problem was that soon after that time, I just went back to doing what I was doing before. I went from a spiritual high to a spiritual low. And Satan was in there trying to discourage me, trying to get me to stop focusing on Jesus. And we see the same thing that Jesus identifies here in the text, is that the issue behind Peter's unbelief, behind Peter trying to rebuke Jesus, is Satan. Jesus, of course, calls out Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, this is such a stark contrast. On the one hand, we've got Peter making this great declaration. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. On the other hand, he's trying to rebuke Jesus. Don't go to the cross. I don't want to lose you. Why did Peter say this? Why did Peter get distracted, consumed by the things of man, as the text said? Why did Peter have Satan go after him? I think it's clear that Peter, of course, didn't want Jesus to die. Peter 
didn't want Jesus to get the victory. So Peter didn't want Satan to get the victory. And so he thought by Jesus dying that Satan would win. But Peter did not know that by a seeming loss of Jesus' life, that Jesus would gain the great victory. We see in the text that Jesus was not distracted. Jesus was focused. Even when Peter became a hindrance to him, he would continue on. That Jesus would go to the cross and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised. Even when his close, one of his closest friends and his closest followers was against him, Jesus would not be distracted. And so for us, we must realize that if you hold this confession to be true, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you will also be attacked by Satan. And he may, in fact, make you a hindrance to the work of Jesus. We see this in a few ways. I think Peter had become overconfident. That is... He thought that after Jesus blessed him, that he had the authority to rebuke Jesus. And this is totally not on in the disciple-teacher relationship. The disciple would never rebuke the teacher. And yet Peter was filled with overconfidence. And he thought, well, I can do anything. But no, it was misplaced. Peter also let his own agenda get ahead of Jesus' agenda. He wanted Jesus to do what he wanted rather than what was most necessary and important, that Jesus would suffer and then receive glory. Following Jesus, Peter was realizing was going to cost him his comfort. Let me say to you this morning that following Jesus will also cost you your comfort. It will not be easy. There will be choices that have to be made. Following Jesus is not a comfortable life that you will live. And if you choose comfort, if you choose to be a Christian, but you want to remain comfortable, Satan may well be causing you to be a hindrance to the work of God in your life and in the church. I want you to notice something, though, that I think is really important here. This is a pretty strong rebuke by Jesus against Peter. You know, he calls him Satan. I don't know if you'd like to be called Satan. It's a strong rebuke. And Jesus calls out exactly what the problem is. He's setting his eyes on the things of man, not on the things of God. But he does it within the context of relationship. Jesus doesn't discard Peter. He keeps him close. Jesus loves Peter. And so even though he's rebuked him, Jesus will uphold and affirm him later on. And I think this is good for us to know that even if we've failed and perhaps we've become a hindrance, even if we've chosen comfort over Jesus, we've chosen the easy path in life over Jesus, he still has a place for us and he will not let you go, which is good news for all of us. Fifthly and finally, Peter was called and the disciples all were called to deny and to die to themselves and to follow Jesus. And we see this in verses 24 to 28. We need to surrender our will to Jesus' will. 
Jesus said in verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the constant battle that we're having in our lives between our own self-rule and Jesus' rule over us. We can either fake Christianity or we can fully surrender ourselves to Jesus. If we fake it, if we pretend that we're going to follow God but we don't, if we choose comfort, if, even if we have nothing to do with God and we just choose that I want to be as comfortable and as happy for the rest of my life as possible, Jesus points out something which I think is a stark truth and we need to hear it in verse 26. For what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And I've thought about this verse many times in my life. That you can have everything in the world. You know, have the best job, the best career, the best retirement, all the money that you want saved up for the future. You can have a great family. You can have beautiful children. You can look forward to having them. You can have all the ideal dreams, you know, a beautiful house, a car, everything you've ever wanted. And it won't be worth it. Because if you don't have Jesus, you'll forfeit your soul. Many of us are chasing a dream which we haven't thought about the end of. Because I said at the beginning, you will be asked this question, who do you say that I am by Jesus another time? And you will have to do something about that now. Then it will be too late. Do not choose comfort over Jesus. It's not worth it. For what profit, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You can't buy your soul either. And that's such an interesting thought. We talk about selling our soul sometimes. But we have no control over what happens to our soul, but God does. And so we have one thing to do with it, and we can believe in Jesus and so that he would receive it. And so, in turn, we would receive eternal life. So Jesus calls these disciples of his and to deny themselves and follow Jesus, to give up everything for his sake, to not surrender to comfort, but to surrender to him, trusting that his will is good. But Jesus said this knowing that he would do the same thing for them. I remember when I joined the army and went through basic training, the idea is that they take you from being a civilian to being a soldier. We used to joke around that it was like being in prison, but you slowly got your um, responsibility back in life. Because literally every aspect of your day was controlled because they wanted to make you think like a soldier, not like a civilian. And you know, over time, we came to respect uh, those above us, you know, our corporals and sergeants and lieutenants and uh, the colonel and the captain and everyone. And then... One time, I remember the colonel sort of drove past in his car. And if you see the car with the flag on it, you have to salute the car as you go past if someone important is inside the car. 
And the whole thing that they're instilling into you is that you must control your will so that you will become a good soldier. You must be so conformed and fused into this soldier-like person that at a command, you will go to your death. You will do anything for those above you. Unfortunately, uh, we see that in the military, this doesn't quite seem to stick in people's hearts, this idea of obedience for the right reasons. This idea of fusing our will and controlling us and reforming us into a new identity of being a soldier actually translates to people often just trying to climb the, the ladder, trying to get a promotion. They're trying to get ahead. They're not doing it because they love those above them, but they're trying to get ahead. We find that those that go to war and do give their lives come back traumatized. And there seems to be no winners. But Jesus is quite different. It's as if you know, that person I said that was in the car, we had to salute them. They're a very important high up position in the military. We had to even salute their car. It's as if the general came and stepped down and said, and you know, went to fight in the front lines and said, I'll take the bullet for you. And of course, if the general did do that, and he did save my life personally, I would be moved to serve the military and serve those above me, not because I've been forced to do it, I've been made into a new will, become a soldier to do it, but I'd do it because I love that person who died for me. You know, when someone does a great act of service for you, they're even willing to lay down their life for you, you would love them in return. And that is what Jesus is saying here. He's calling his disciples to take up their cross and follow him because he would take up a cross first and die for them so that they will be motivated to live their life for Jesus because he would first die for them. That he would die for them to loose them from their sin by being first bound to their sin. The whole point of the cross in the Bible, it's an article of death, but it's an article where Jesus would take the cause of death from all of us upon himself. That our sin, the things that we've done, would go onto his cross. And as he died, the payment for it would be paid in full. So that when Jesus rises from the dead, we can say that our sins are forgiven, they're paid for, and we have new life in him. And so we're motivated then by this great love that he has for us. In verses 27 and 28, we again get this idea of Jesus' return. Verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus is coming back. He will repay each according to what they have done. And this is a cause for motivation for Christians to have our eyes fixed on that last day. Now, as the Son of Man comes riding on the clouds, as we sung about earlier, so too our eyes should be fixed on Jesus coming, his return, his glory, so that all our life would be worth it and that we 
like a good soldier, would receive his commendation on that last day. That's the whole end point of everything that's happening here. And then, of course, we continue on into glory from that moment. Verse 28, Jesus says that some of those that are with him will get a foretaste. We read this, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, actually, we see it in the very next verses in chapter 17. Jesus is talking about the transfiguration where Peter, James and John will be called to a mountain and that they would hear from the heavens, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They get a taste of Jesus' glory. They get a taste of who Jesus really is. Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Peter gets a taste of Jesus' glory. Him coming in his kingdom. They see him truly for who he is. And of course, they don't speak about this moment, this transfiguration until much later. They're told not to. They, they feel like they can't. But it is this great glory of Jesus which motivates them. And Jesus is saying, should motivate you for the future taste of glory remember in the old testament moses when he got close to god the closer he got the more he wanted he says these words show me your glory to god and god hides him in the cleft of a rock so that he can just see just a, a tiny taste of god's glory and I guess this question about motivation, I think, is really important because many Christians, many of you here today, would be hearing these words about living a life of uh, having the same confession that Peter has and declaring it in every part of your life and you know, not succumbing to satanic attack and being a hindrance to the work of the church. And yet we think that that's very hard to do. And what happens when I get discouraged? And what happens when life doesn't work out? What happens when circumstances don't go my way? Well, Jesus would say, be motivated by his glory. And I would say to you that we need to ask, like Moses did, for a taste of his glory. We need to ask Jesus to be the one to motivate us to move us to love him. You know, I mentioned the general, the idea of the general stepping down into the place of a soldier to die on behalf of others. That sort of thing moves this, all the soldiers to do whatever for their country and for their leaders, for the sake that others would die for them. I remember when I was in the military, they always they used to point to Gallipoli and say how important that was that people would go and serve and die for the sake of others. And it moved us. If you've ever been to a dawn service, an Anzac Day dawn service, it moves you. you know, there's a sense of still, there's a sense of quiet on the place at dawn when you realise that others had sacrificed their life for yours. 
And yet we can ask for that same sense of glory of what Jesus has done for us and looking forward to him on the last day. We too should desire a taste of his glory so that we too can be people in all of life who when asked the question, who do you say that I am? We declare with Peter that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth of it. Lord, we thank you for what Jesus has done, that he laid down his life for ours. We thank you that you will continue to build your church with people broken like us. And Lord, I pray that you would humble our hearts before you to serve you and be faithful to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.